Welcome back to Buddhist Solutions for Life's Problems. On this show, we examine how people apply their Buddhist practice to the complex challenges of being human. I'm Jihi Jolly, a journalist and practitioner of SGI Nichiren Buddhism. Today, we are talking about money. culture, Buddhism can be seen as a religion that encourages us to extinguish our desires. Yet the reality of life is that we need things like money and work to survive. Because Buddhism teaches that one's environment is a reflection of one's inner life, our relationship with money also simply reflects what's happening inside of us. Money can, for example, be the focus of our greed, jealousy, or misery. It can be the expression of our compassion the impetus for us to achieve our goals, or it can be a reflection of our inner confidence, freedom, and wisdom. But what does that mean for our actual daily interactions with it? I reached out to three people in three states to help me navigate today's episode, because money is a complicated topic, and I had so many questions to ask. You'll get to know their stories over the course of the episode, and also what Buddhism says about how to recognize and transform financial karma. So why do so many Americans confuse wealth with happiness or put wealth above other qualities, such as good physical health or loving relationships, or living every day with a feeling of hope and courage. There are so many wealthy people who are so miserable. To live a joyful life, there needs to be a delicate but meaningful balance between materiality and spirituality. Material wealth without any spiritual backbone usually leads to outsized ego, greed, as no one could ever have enough money, anger, and unhappiness. A strong spiritual practice leads to respect for all people, regardless of their personal circumstances, a deep appreciation for everything that we have, and a desire to share our good fortune, both through supporting worthy charities and helping others realize their dreams and goals. That's Greg Walpert, a real estate investor in New York City who has also practiced Buddhism for over 40 years. I reached out to him because I figured he could share a perspective on Buddhism I've always been curious about, but I also assumed he would be incredibly busy, which he is. To my surprise, the day I went to his office to interview him, he showed up with five pages of written remarks on his experiences with Buddhism and money, so humbly and thoughtfully prepared that I was stunned. So we recorded it. Here's a little more. And certainly no one is perfect. And even with a strong spiritual practice, it is almost impossible to keep your ego in check all of the time. One personal example and experience I had is with an old car. I previously owned two Mercedes Benzes, the first acquired while I was still in my 20s as a material reward to myself and quite an ego booster. I thought I was so important driving a Benz and it fed my ego. But through my Buddhist practice, the universe actually rescued me from this ego trap. Every time I needed its service 
It was like wearing a kick-me sign on my back, as it required two or three times the amount of money to take care of this car than a normal car. So I woke up from the damage my ego was doing to my wallet, and I traded in the Benz for a new Subaru. Today, of course, I can afford to own and drive any car that I want to, but I choose to stick with a new Subaru every few years. We'll return to his very unusual, illuminating story later in the episode, but let's start today with something I learned from a woman named Betsy Epsteiner. Betsy is a wonderfully warm leader in the grassroots Buddhist community I practice with, and a teacher by day who started chanting in Boston in 1971. Today, she lives in Naples, Florida, and helps to support Buddhist groups in the Caribbean. I decided to speak to her because over the years, she's seen a lot of different kinds of human struggle, from just about every type of karma you could imagine, health, career, family, financial, and the list goes on. She herself grew up with a single mother who struggled financially to support her children. So I started by asking her, what is karma and what does it have to do with finance? Karma, in a sense, is, you know, we're in a situation because of the causes we've accumulated over time. And the way to change karma, of course, is to be able to make different kinds of choices. There is such a thing as poverty, you know, where people, because they don't have a job, they have no way of um, taking care of their bills, providing for themselves and their family. So that's a source of extreme anxiety and fear. So the poverty, perhaps you could call it, that my mother experienced became, you know, an impetus for me to never be in a situation where I couldn't um, pay my own bills or pay my own way. Through our conversation, I learned that the reason people are born into different life circumstances is a function of karma. But the beauty of the Lotus Sutra, on which Nichiren Buddhism is based, is that karma can be changed. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, or what patterns we see repeated in our lives, by transforming our inner state of being, we can experience vast freedom and joy, despite our circumstances, and based on this elevated life state, make the causes to change our situation. In this sense, the problems of daily life, be they financial or otherwise, are expedient means to attain Buddhahood. As stated in the record of the orally transmitted teachings, when Nichiren and his followers recite the words Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, they are burning the firewood of earthly desires, summoning up the wisdom fire of bodhi, or enlightenment. In other words, chanting allows us to draw forth the limitless power we inherently possess. As SGI President Daisaku Ikeda explains, it enables us to change earthly desires or deluded impulses into wisdom, just as fire burns firewood to produce light. We can also transform a life that has been filled with the sufferings of birth and death into one pervaded by vibrant and unbounded joy, just as spring sunshine can melt ice and snow to create a flowing stream. Self-transformation, this is the main theme of Buddhism. In terms of daily life, we need things like compassion to mend a bad family relationship, or courage to speak up or leave when being treated poorly by a boss, or perseverance and wisdom to overcome debt. 
These life circumstances can be the impetus for us to bring out our higher life states, or Buddhahood, which is what Buddhists chant to do. I'll return to Betsy later on to help break down a few more topics, but let's hear a story of a very simple but profound example of this first point. Moon Jung Cho lives with her husband and daughter in Virginia. She began practicing Buddhism in South Korea before she immigrated to the United States because her mother was very sick at the time, and so a friend introduced the entire family to chanting. When, when she was in 40s, um, uh, she was facing life or death um, health issue. But uh, as soon as she started chanting, and, and we all started chanting for her, um, she gained life force and she become really healthy within a few months. So we witnessed that. And even though I was a young girl, I realized chanting on mirroring has a power. Moonjung eventually moved to the United States after gaining a government scholarship, where she got married and had a daughter. Until a few years ago, the family lived comfortably on two incomes. But in 2017, things suddenly took a turn for the worse. Her husband's business faced financial difficulties, and she found herself needing to support the family based on her income alone. It should be okay, but because of we plan everything based on both incomes, so I had to really face a situation whether I, I don't know whether I can pay mortgage next month because it's hard to expect when the money coming in. She found herself in a state of anxiety, self-doubt, and anger both at her husband and at herself, for not saving more money or being prepared for a situation like this. But then she dialogued with a fellow Buddhist practitioner, who encouraged her to have appreciation for the situation and use it as an opportunity to change something deeper in her life. Without uh, uh, correct my behavior or my relationship with money, uh, there is no guarantee I will have financial freedom later on, even if I have more income coming in. So I take this, uh, in a way, suffering or very difficult situation, but I Buddhist practice helped me to see as a benefit or opportunity. Uh, I learned that uh, I had a behavior issue <laughs> in a way. For example, I love to shop. Very small items, $5, $10, $20, small items. And then I realized that I'm enjoying the shopping itself. The moment I shop, I really enjoy, I feel joy. But, um, uh, but those items are actually, I don't need it. But at one part of my life, I know when I buy it, uh, I rather need to pay debt <laughs> or I better need to save. But because I enjoying the moment of the joy shopping, um, so I spend small amount of items, I, I shopping small items, but it ends up, it adds up. This, combined with never having created a financial plan for her family's future, motivated her to start educating herself and drastically changing her lifestyle. She started budgeting, got rid of all credit cards, started building an emergency savings, sold many unused items from her house, and decided to teach her daughter to do the same. Buddhism is a reason. Um, so that uh, it, how I behave or what kind of action I take is most important in our Buddhist practice. And then one issue I had was I have a really good uh, 
hope in my future because I have a good profession, I have a good education, I will be okay. But it was not based on my action what I'm taking.、Uh, I don't take any action manage finance well, or I don't take any action to improve myself. But I have kind of hope that my future will be okay. And I realize that's not the true Buddhism.、Hmm. So I reflect myself because of this financial issue. I reflect myself how much I make efforts at my work. Do I really make efforts to grow more? Not just thinking, oh, I have a good education, I'm, I'm always good at it, so my future will be okay. It's not guaranteed. So I really watching,、uh, reflect myself what kind of action I'm taking in my daily life for future to guarantee better future. The reality is that Moonjung's situation is all too common in the United States, where in 2019, credit card loans reached a total of $829 billion, an increase of $45 billion since 2017. According to the US News and World Report, it's not just people who are low wage earners who accumulate debt out of necessity. Many Americans live beyond their means. 29%, for example, have taken extreme action to finance a vacation, such as taking out a bank loan, maxing out on credit cards, or cleaning out their savings. And often, this stems from a simple lack of financial literacy. According to Forbes, two thirds of Americans cannot pass a financial literacy test. What Buddhism teaches is that when we are faced with such common yet stress inducing realities, By looking inwards for fulfillment, we can access a greater sense of freedom than material wealth can ever give us. Because as we've seen, even if we have access to money, we won't necessarily hold on to it unless we change something deeper about ourselves. In the words of Daisaku Ikeda, when we awaken to the fact that we possess within us the life state of Buddhahood as vast as the universe itself, there is no difficulty we cannot surmount. When we manifest our inherent strength, we can challenge boldly with confidence and joy the tasks that lie before us each day. Now, let's head to the Bronx for a really profound, unusual, and illuminating story. In the summer of 1975, and New York City is experiencing a severe cash shortage, 17 year old Greg Walpert, who grew up in Kingsbridge, a working class neighborhood in the Bronx, is at a bar. He hangs out here nearly every day and notices that one by one, the regulars in the bar are being introduced to Nichiren Buddhism. They stopped coming to the bar at 6 o'clock, they started getting to the bar at 9 o'clock. You know, underage drinkers like myself, we were all, you know, heavily drunk, and they would come in and say, You could solve all your problems chanting Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. Finally, they persuaded me to come to,、uh, you know, a Buddhist discussion meeting. He's been chanting ever since. But before we get into that, let's get to know Greg a little bit better. He grew up with four siblings, and his father worked for the city, so there wasn't much money to go around. The first time he noticed income disparity was in middle school, when he took the bus to Riverdale, a slightly more wealthy part of the Bronx. By the time he was in high school, Greg had become an unhappy teenager who was distrusting of peers who had money, who he would denounce as members of an elite club. Eventually, 
After many failed attempts to find happiness through drinking, drugs, and even exercise, Greg decided that he could only be happy if he left New York City. So at 17, he bought a one-way ticket to Alaska, his bike in tow. Uh, if anybody knows the Alaskan Highway, uh, 100 feet after you cross the border into the Yukon Territory, the road is no longer paved. And riding on this uh, dirt and gravel road, I was getting sprayed by trucks with gravel. And uh, another phenomenon about Alaska is the mosquitoes are the size of bumblebees. And I was getting flat tires. And uh, I was just totally miserable. And I had this instant recognition that uh, being far away from New York was not going to make me happy. And my problems that I had inside me just followed me like my shadow all the way to Alaska. So he eventually worked his way back to New York and while passing through Colorado, fell in love with the state and decided he would go to school there. This is how he ended up in the bar the summer before leaving for college in Boulder. And I remember it, it, the meeting was in Manhattan and my life condition was so small that the one thing I you know, required was round-trip transportation because I couldn't spend my bar money, uh, you know, traveling to and from Manhattan uh, to go to a Buddhist meeting. Uh, but what I found at this Buddhist meeting was, was fascinating uh, because it wasn't just these people that I knew that uh, were swearing up and down that they were going to change their life through practicing Buddhism. It was, you know, a whole community of people challenging uh, you know, their own unique circumstances and, and problems. And that really touched my life. And I think that's what sustained my, my practice for the first uh, several years. Of, uh, I just felt happier. I felt more confident. I was able to let go of uh, the jealousy and the anger and the hatred. And it helped me uh, elevate my life and, and focus on, you know, getting through college uh, and, and starting to develop, you know, my own goals and, and my own dreams. Greg's first job out of college was as an auditor for the New York City Controller's Office in 1977. And some of the audits that he was involved with were foreclosed properties that the city's pension funds had loaned money on and the newly reconstructed Yankees and Shea stadiums. Slowly, real estate became more interesting to him than accounting and auditing. So he enrolled in night school at NYU to study real estate finance. You know, after studying real estate finance, I uh, realized how quickly I had outgrown this job as an auditor for the city controller's office and, and started applying for jobs in, in the real estate industry. And I was hired by a firm, to, you know, one of the, the largest real estate companies in, in the United States. At the same time, Greg's Buddhist practice was developing. Before and after work, he would chant, study, and help organize activities at the local Buddhist center in the city. I think from, from my uh, Buddhist practice, I always had a sense that I want to grow. And, and it wasn't about, you know, growing to make more money. It was growing to 
be a better person, growing to gain more knowledge, growing to be a better team player in my company. And I think, uh, again, as my practice and my faith grew, uh, it was very natural to want to be able to do more, help more people, uh, you know, both in my daily life and in, in, in my business life. But while he enjoyed the value he was able to create in his daily life, at work, he found that the value he was able to create was only appreciated if it brought in more profit for the company, despite going above and beyond his job duties and often pulling all-nighters at work. And, and it, it worked for me when I was doing what they wanted me to do. But as I kind of started to get bored with that uh, and wanted to grow further, uh, there was a reluctance on the part of the uh, ownership of the company to let me get into new areas that may or may not uh, make the company, you know, more money. And, and I think, you know, looking back, you know, in the 1980s, I wasn't ready. My life wasn't ready to, you know, to have, have wealth. You know, the first thing I did when I got money, as I, as I had mentioned, is I went and bought a Mercedes-Benz. It was probably the stupidest thing I'd ever done, you know, to that date uh, in my life. And, you know, for what? Just to impress people that, you know, that in my, in my 20s I, I can own a, an expensive car. And it, it, made no, it really made no sense for me. Working... Uh, for this real estate uh, leasing and management company, I was still very, very young and very idealistic, and I could say that I was afraid of the trappings of wealth, because the people who owned the company who were wealthy were basically not nice people, and I didn't want to be like them. So I, uh, you know, I had a much stronger spirituality from practicing Buddhism than I had any kind of a desire uh, to be, you know, to, to make it rich, to be, to be wealthy, uh, because the people that I knew that were wealthy were miserable people, uh, and they weren't people that treated other people nicely, and uh, they weren't people that, uh, you know, that maybe they superficially were enjoying their life, but uh, I didn't feel like they were leading a contributive life like I was learning through my, my Buddhist practice. So Greg decided it was time to resign. And then something surprising happened. The day he handed in his resignation, Stanley Stahl, a billionaire real estate investor who was also the largest client of the firm, called him up. Greg had only met him in passing twice. So he was shocked by the call, and even more shocked by what Mr. Stahl said. But I wasn't even sure he knew who I was. And so here he was calling me on the phone saying, I'm so glad you resigned. You know, I've, I've wanted to hire you for a long time, but uh, I, I thought that was unethical to just, you know, poach you away from this company that's, that's managing my property. But since you resigned, come work for me. Mr. Stahl founded the Stahl Organization in 1949, along with Stahl Real Estate. His investments included about 4 million square feet of office space, residential buildings with more than 3,000 apartments, and numerous retail buildings. 
He was also the sole stockholder of Apple Bank for Savings, a bank with more than 30 branches at that time, which is now one of the largest privately held banks in America. And of course, I, my ego you know, instantly got inflated that you know, this billionaire real estate investor wants me to come uh, work for him. I must be smart. I must be great. I must be, you know, all that. And my first day here uh, at the Stahl organization, uh, July 1989, the very first day, uh, Mr. Stahl told me, uh, okay, now you have to forget everything you learned. Working for this real estate uh, leasing and management company, and I was kind of shocked. Uh, and he, he explained to me that this company, nobody there has real vision and long-term thinking. And, and Mr. Stahl had tremendous wisdom. Uh, he was a you know, wonderful business mentor. You know, he hit the nail right on the head. That, that is the real estate brokerage business. It is a real eat-what-you-kill business. And nobody really thinks about creating wealth and creating value and holding on to properties for generations. And, you know. and uh, so he really uh, woke me up to a much different vision uh, of the real estate business. And, uh, you know, I had the, the privilege to work for him for uh, 10 years. He passed away uh, in August of 1999. When Mr. Stahl passed away, pursuant to his will, Greg was named co-president of the company and suddenly found himself to be a very wealthy, very powerful man. In life, you have a lot of training and you don't know when your day is going to come. And that day came. And uh, I, I do think it, it, it changed my, uh, my practice uh, of, of Buddhism that, you know, every day uh, morning gongyo became more important. And uh, it's, it's hard to say that you built courage overnight, but, uh, you know, the level of uh, courage and confidence that I, I needed uh, not just to maintain the business, but uh, Mr. Stahl always had this vision that this business was going to far outlive him, and he wanted the business to continue to grow uh, and, and prosper. And, you know, when he uh, passed away, the Apple Bank was about $6 billion in assets, and now it's about $14.5 billion in assets. His story, unusual as it seems, helped me understand a really simple core idea in Buddhism. In order to experience freedom and fulfillment in life, overcoming our negative tendencies, which Buddhism calls the lesser self, is incredibly important. When we don't, money can play a negative influence in our life when it's there in abundance, or when it isn't. To better illustrate how this principle works in society, consider this excerpt from the poem The Son of Jiyu Over a New Land, which is a famous Buddhist poem written by Ikeda on a visit to the U.S. in 1993. It says, For several brilliant centuries, Western civilization has encouraged the independence of the individual, but now appears to be facing a turbulent twilight. The waves of egoism eat away at the shores of contemporary society. The tragedy of division 
wraps the world in a thick fog. Individuals are becoming mere scraps, mere fragments, competing reed bundles of lesser self, threatened with mutual collapse. My friends, please realize that you already possess the solution to this quandary. First, you must break the hard shell of the lesser self. This you must absolutely do. In Buddhism, this means developing a solid practice and making efforts to care for and support others by participating in community. When we suffer, especially financially, we tend to think that we are alone, feel stuck, and resent those in better circumstances than us. But when we engage in a shared struggle together with our friends and neighbors, we can develop what Buddhism calls treasures of the heart, which supersede the value we derive from material wealth or treasures of the storehouse. Seeing Betsy's attitude toward money really proved this to me. She herself lives a modest life as a teacher, but she told me that she feels extremely fortunate. In practicing for others, we accumulate what we call the treasures of the heart, which means that regardless of whether we're rich or poor or healthy or not, we develop a life state that is indestructible, meaning that um, you know, we're not swayed by you know, the problems in our environment, but we use them as a springboard for our own development. Absolute happiness means, to me, having complete conviction that whatever problem presents itself to be able to transform it and to achieve victory and to, and everything has meaning. So um, absolute happiness means to be able to create value and meaning out of the struggles that we face when we deal with a transient aspect of life. You know, people tend to become attached to uh, what they enjoy in their life, but happiness is not a function of those attachments. Happiness is a function, I feel, of feeling, of being empowered to um, transform our own lives while we embrace the person next to us to be able to do exactly the same thing. This echoes something I've read in the writings of Nichiren Daishonin in a letter called The Wealthy Man Sudatta. It reads, In India, there was a wealthy man called Sudatta. Seven times he became poor, and seven times he became a wealthy man. During his last period of poverty, when all the people had fled or perished, and only he and his wife remained, they had five measures of rice that would nourish them for five days. At that time, five people came one after another to beg for the five measures of rice, which Sudatta gave them. From that day on, Sudatta was the wealthiest man in all India, and he built Jetavana Monastery. From this, you should understand all things. Ikeda, explaining the story of Sudatta, writes, It is indeed true, as Nichiren says, that one's heart is most important. No matter how difficult or challenging our circumstances, we must never be defeated in our hearts. There is no need to despair or belittle ourselves. The Daishonin teaches that we simply need to do the very best we can, in our own way, for the sake of Buddhism and the happiness of others. The treasures of the heart that we accumulate in the process will enrich our lives, bring us happiness and benefit, and give rise to unsurpassed fortune. 
In other words, developing a sense of self based on our conviction in the power of our own life and the depth of character to support other people. We aren't trapped by external circumstances, in this case, wealth or a lack of it, but we just feel free and happy in an unshakable way. When I asked Greg how he reconciled the anger and distrust he felt toward the wealthy in his youth, and even at his first real estate job, with this new, unexpected path life took him on, he shared that Buddhism teaches that distrust emanates from one's own life. You know, you could say it was jealousy or anger. You know, why was I born into a situation where uh, my father didn't have uh, money? Uh, why can't I afford the clothes uh, that these people are wearing? Uh, you know, why am I looking at state universities and not private colleges? Uh, yeah, why do I need to take more credits and try to graduate earlier to get out of school uh, so that I, I don't, you know, saddle myself with a, a much larger bill? Uh, for college, and, and but you kind of um, superimpose these problems like it's someone else's problem, uh, you know, without a strong Buddhist practice. When the reality is, is, is that 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 was really my my problem, my anger, my ego, my jealousy, uh, you know, that was you know adversely affecting you know my life condition. Today, by living within his means, Greg is able to meaningfully donate to 40 to 50 charities per year related to the arts, medicine, science, peace, refugees, and education. And in a sense, he has fulfilled his childhood dream of building buildings at the Stahl organization. Here's Greg again from the original remarks he had prepared. I believe that when you are mentally and emotionally ready to handle wealth, it will come into your life naturally. Again, this is the law of cause and effect. Conversely, it is best to avoid chasing wealth without a counterbalancing spirituality. Buying lottery tickets, excessive gambling, breaking the law, cheating other people, or marrying for money, these are all examples of chasing materiality without a counterbalancing spirituality and usually lead to disastrous results. And it is also not helpful if you have big dreams but take no action to accomplish these dreams. You must raise your life condition, build your courage, and take bold action to achieve success. This is the real benefit of daily Buddhist practice. In summary, a consistent Buddhist practice has brought wealth into my life without me having to chase after it. Instead, by raising my life condition, working hard, helping others, and learning from mentors, wealth has actually chased me. Equally important, chanting Nam-myoho-renge-kyo has helped me avoid the trappings of wealth and live a contributive life surrounded by so many incredible trusting friends, colleagues, and mentors. Thinking about this made me wonder about what a society, or even economy, based on this kind of strength of spirit could look like. Then I came across this. In a very famous book by E. F. Schumacher, the German statistician and economist, called Small is Beautiful, a study of economics as if people mattered, 
There's a chapter called Buddhist Economics, in which he speculates on what the Buddhist perspective on work and money could be. First, he clarifies that spiritual health and material well-being are not enemies, they're natural allies, which I think we've seen exemplified through Greg's story of having a spiritual foundation upon which to receive wealth without being swayed by it, and Moonjang's story of using her Buddhist practice to unlock the wisdom to propel herself through a period of financial suffering. Schumacher continues, The Buddhist point of view takes the function of work to be at least threefold, to give a man a chance to utilize and develop his faculties, to enable him to overcome his ego-centeredness by joining with other people in a common task, and to bring forth the goods and services needed for a becoming existence. Buddhist economics must be very different from the economics of modern materialism, since the Buddhist sees the essence of civilization not in a multiplication of wants, but in the purification of human character. In terms of Nichiren in Buddhism, we are able to purify our character by chanting Namyo Horenge Kyo about all of our earthly desires, a process which inevitably helps us to overcome our attachment to relative happiness or gain, and instead access a state of life that is deeply confident and also deeply compassionate. Next time, we'll be talking about how to believe you can actually change the world, what it's like to be Buddhist in corporate America, and how to be a great Buddhist parent. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a rating or review. And as always, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email me at podcast at sgi-usa.org.